that we spent here. Uh, the reason for that is because at the very start of this sermon, Jesus ascends up a hill and begins to speak. He begins to speak and he offers this three-chapter sermon. So tonight we are finishing the sermon. Let me, let me just read the, uh, the passage that we're going to be going over tonight and then we will start. So here's what we find. We're in Matthew 7, verses 24 through the end of the chapter. Matthew 7, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who does not hear these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Verse 28, and when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Let me pray once more. Father, we we see here in your word um, some staggering truths, and we are greatly encouraged by these words. And we pray that tonight as we we read what we find here, we pray that it would be uh, extremely helpful. Lord, we know that your word does not return void, and so we ask that that would take place tonight. We pray that as your word goes out, it would would be uh, simultaneously encouraging us and and convicting us and giving us grace to, to know how we ought to grow moving forward. Father, we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, sometimes when people enter into a conversation with a sense of of confidence and a sense of decisiveness, or they they enter into a conversation with a level of authority, uh, it can kind of catch us off guard. When someone uh, comes into a conversation speaking authoritatively, we can, at times, interpret their tone and their attitude as arrogance. I mean, think about it for a moment. If someone comes to you and claims to be an expert at something, automatically, you're going to hear their words with a level of skepticism. If someone comes to you and they have an attitude or an aura about them where they're carrying themselves as authoritative you're going to be somewhat skeptical until that person proves that they are actually someone who has expertise, right? I think this is just a common human experience. We typically want to know whether or not the person we are talking to knows what they are talking about before we begin to listen, right? Before we start taking their advice and listening to everything they have to say, we want to know that they actually have an authority, not that they just carry themselves with an authority, so think about when people come to you and they offer you some sort of correction. Have, have you ever found yourself sort of annoyed when someone comes to you and corrects you? Maybe someone comes to you after you hit a volleyball incorrectly and they correct your form. 
Maybe a, a professor comes to you and, and corrects the way that uh, you, you delivered a speech during a class. Uh, maybe it's someone just sitting next to you on the bar who decides they want to interject themselves into your conversation and they begin correcting and, and fact-checking everything that you say. Right? Sometimes it's difficult to listen to someone who comes to us with that sort of authoritative attitude. But yet, there are times when someone comes to us and they have this authoritative aura about them and they offer us correction and we're quick to listen. So what's the difference? Why is it that sometimes we are, we are welcome to correction from other people while sometimes it just causes us to be skeptical? Here's the deal. The more uh, someone has proven themselves authoritative, the more open we are to hear their correction. The more someone has proven their expertise on something, the more uh, open we are going to be to hearing from them. So, for example, I, I did not grow up playing volleyball. Like, where, where I grew up, uh, even, you know, in the town I was in, uh, the high school I was in, even though it was a large high school, we didn't have, like, men volleyball teams, right? That's like a thing here. And so uh, I came here and I started playing volleyball with people and I didn't know really how to serve or how to spike or how to bump or how to set or any of these things, right? And then I'm like playing next to Jason Agopian. And if you know Jason Agopian, like if he offers you correction on your form when it comes to volleyball, you're just like, you know, my ears are open. Tell me anything that you have to say. Because, like, he's an NCAA national championship volleyball player. And, oh, yeah, he was, like, the captain of the team. You know, so you're like, yes, please, teach me everything you know as soon as you can. Right? You're welcome to correction in that sort of situation. Like, my brother, he, he works for Fidelity. He's, like, really high up in Fidelity. He's a financial advisor. And so when he comes to me and he starts correcting, like, my financial investment strategies, like, I'm listening, right? I'm not going to question what he has to say. I don't have the finance major. I don't have all of these, you know, different certifications. I'm just going to listen to what he has to say about investing in, uh, you know, finances. We just bought a home, right? And, and so when we're in the search for a home... I'm going to have really open ears when the police officer is telling us, like, which neighborhoods to avoid, right? I'm not going to just shut him down and say, ah, yeah, I don't really take you as authoritative here. No, I want to know everything he has to say about the neighborhoods, which to avoid, which to look for, right? Sometimes expertise, sometimes authority is welcomed. Other times we receive it with skepticism. Well, here's the, the reason I bring this up. I want to point this out because when Jesus enters into his religious context, he comes into that context with a remarkable amount of self-proclaimed authority. Jesus clearly views himself as someone with exceptional authority. He comes on the scene with that aura. And those who heard him on the mountain, they did not leave with questions about who Jesus thought he was. Jesus' demeanor and his perspective of himself, it was clear to everyone who was listening to him. Look at what verse 28 and verse 29 says. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Verse 29, here's why they were astonished. Because he was teaching them, as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, they're walking away from this 
uh, sermon in awe of the authority with which Jesus is speaking. Jesus has a self-perceived idea of himself, and it is one of authority. He views himself, uh, himself as authoritative, and everyone listening to him realized that. He tells everyone listening, I am the one with the answers. I am the one that you should follow. He tells everyone, I am the one upon whom you should build your life. My words should be the foundation of everything you do. So if you're in the audience and someone is telling you that, you're going to have one of two responses. Either this man is out of his mind or what he is saying is true. Right? There's not much in between ground here. If he comes to you and says, build your house on my teaching or perish, you're kind of wondering, okay, either he's crazy, he's a lunatic, or what he's saying is true. And notice, he does not stop here saying, listen to what I have to say. He goes further by saying, if you do not listen to what I have to say, you are going to put your life in jeopardy. The amount of self-confidence that Jesus has is staggering here. Right? The, the amount of belief that he has in the importance of his own words should cause us, even here and now, 2,000 years removed, to stop and consider everything he is saying. So let's put these things in context. Notice that the entire crowd was astonished by what Jesus was saying. They weren't only astounded by the content of what he was saying. They were astounded by the way he was speaking. They were caught off guard by Jesus' perspective of himself. They, they had to stop and wonder how it was that he was carrying himself with such authority. He was not like their religious leaders. He, he comes to them speaking words, and he, and, and, and he, as he's speaking these words, expects his audience to take them as authoritative. Jesus did not have a low view of himself. He didn't have a, a low view of his message. He, he held his own words in high esteem. Uh, remember, we discussed this. Jesus goes up on this mountain and begins to speak. And remember what he was doing there? We talked about this months ago. Jesus was setting himself up right next to Moses on Mount Sinai. When you look at Matthew's context, it's very clear that as Jesus is heading up, Mount so Mount, uh, up this mountain, he's comparing his message with that of Moses' message on Mount Sinai. And that's why we see so many parallels between the law and what Jesus is saying here, which is staggering. He is saying, what I am saying to you is as important as what Moses said to you, if not more. Right? Moses gave the Ten Commandments. Moses gave the old covenant, covenant law. And now Jesus is coming on the scene and offering a new law. So, Jesus also, throughout the course of this sermon, is juxtaposing himself with that of the religious leaders of his day. Remember, over and over and over again, he speaks to their lack of authority and their lack of righteousness versus his own righteousness. So he's forcing the issue. Either you're going to follow him, or you're going to continue in the status quo of your day. Either you're going to follow me, or you're going to continue in the ways of your religious leaders. 
So, that leads us to ask some questions. If Jesus' words are authoritative, if Jesus is truly the rock upon which we need to build our lives, we need to ask how are we putting our lives in jeopardy by ignoring what he has to say? Well, Jesus speaks to us and says that by ignoring him, we are setting ourselves up to failure with when the storms of life come. So here's what he says. The storms of life are coming. Verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came. The winds blew and beat on that house. Jesus is not speaking as though storms in this life are only a possibility. He is not speaking as if storms are a potential in life. No, he is saying that that this life guarantees that storms will come. Right? Behind Jesus' words is this presupposition that storms will come upon you. You will find yourself in the midst of hurt and in the midst of pain and in the midst of heartache and in the midst of sickness and disease and suffering and abandonment and tears and death. That's going to happen, according to Jesus, right? Those elements of life are the result of the fall. If, if you know the story of the Bible, when we come to Genesis 3, we read about this fall that takes place, this, this sin that enters into the human race. In, in uh, Genesis 3, you have Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when that takes place, after being uh, tempted by Satan, they introduce sin into humanity. And with sin comes a curse. The curse introduced through sin is, is a curse upon the entire human existence. Mankind has been affected by the fall in, in a plethora of ways. Every aspect of life has been affected by the fall. Because of the fall, now there is hurt. Now there is pain. Now there is sin. Now there is guilt. Now there is shame. All of these things are a result of what happened in Genesis 3. But there's more. The fall of humankind did not only affect human beings, the fall of humankind affect the entire created order. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that through the fall, the earth, the entire created order was subject to futility because of sin. So because of the fall, mankind will experience storms in this life. There will be difficulty. There will be war. There will be bloodshed. There will be corruption. There will be animosity. In light of these falls, these things are going to be a common experience until the end of this age. And any message that tells you that Jesus is your ticket to escape the storms of this life is a lie. Anyone who tells you that through Jesus you can escape the effects of the fall here and now in this life before Christ returns, that person is manipulating the truth. 
Jesus never promised that we would get to experience escape from the storms of this life. Jesus never promised physical prosperity in this life. He has never guaranteed health and success this side of heaven. In fact, Jesus and the rest of the entire Bible, for that matter, promise the exact opposite. Jesus promises storms. He guarantees persecution. He he promises us that through the gospel, family members are going to turn against one another because they disagree about who Jesus is. That's what Jesus promises. But it doesn't stop with Jesus. As we read throughout the New Testament, what we see over and over again is that the Bible promises suffering, pain, and affliction. Right? Wow, how encouraging, (laughs) right? But let me just walk through some, some examples from the early church. Look at the early Christian history that we find in the book of Acts. I'm just going to walk through a couple of uh, scenes from Paul's life. Paul uh, wrote half the New Testament. In Acts 9, he is converted. He went from an individual who was persecuting the church to being a, a Christian after Jesus called him as he was on a, on a road to go and persecute people. So he's going to persecute Christians. God interferes. He he interrupts Paul's plan. He saves this man. He becomes a Christian. So instead of going to the city of Damascus to persecute Christians, Paul goes to Damascus to preach the gospel after Jesus transforms his life. Paul shows up in Damascus. Instead of persecuting, he begins to preach. And what happens? the the Jewish leaders in that city decide they want to kill Paul. So days after he becomes a Christian, Paul finds himself on the run. He escapes from the city by being let out of a window in a basket. And he flees. He flees to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem. He begins to preach the gospel there. Shortly after he begins to preach, the Jews in Jerusalem decide they want to kill him. So, again, Paul has to flee. This is, you know, zero for two. He's striking out here. He's, he goes to one city, they want to kill him. He goes to the next city, what happens? They want to kill him again. So then, uh, the next scene where Paul comes up is in Acts 13. In Acts 13, the church in Antioch decide that they want to send Paul out as a missionary and so Paul goes to the very first town. This is a, a different Antioch, Antioch in uh, the region of Pisidia. It turns out the Jewish leaders there, they don't want him there. First city Paul goes to as a missionary. He shows up. They don't want him there. They drive him out of the, out of the city. So he goes to Iconium. Guess what happens there? Right, you guess right. So he goes to Iconium, and the people there decide they're going to stone him to death. Paul finds out about it. He, he runs away at night. So he goes to Lystra. He shows up in Lystra, the very next city, and he is stoned. He's stoned, and they think he is dead. They drag him out of the city, and they leave him at the gate of the city because they think he's dead. So Paul wakes up from, you know, being knocked out after being stoned, right? People just throwing rocks at him until they think he's dead. He wakes up, somehow he survives, and he goes to Philippi. 
He goes to Philippi, and you guessed it, more persecution. He's beaten with rods, and he's thrown in prison. The next day, thankfully, he's let out of prison. And so he goes to Thessalonica. Or no, first he goes to Berea. He goes to Berea, a riot begins, and he has to run away from the riot. He gets to Thessalonica, and the people from Berea, they follow him to Thessalonica, and they start another riot in Thessalonica. So I think you get the picture. Every single city he goes to, persecution follows. You know, it's no surprise when, get this, right after Paul like woke up after being stoned in Lystra, he goes into the city and he begins to, to encourage the believers there who had just accepted the gospel, right? So he goes into the city. There's some people who, who accept the gospel. A couple days later, he's stoned and left for dead. He wakes up, goes back to those Christians and encourages them. And he tells them this, through many tribulations, we must enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right. So the guy who just came to us and preached the gospel to us, he was stoned and left for dead. He comes back to us and he says, hey, you want to follow Jesus? It's going to be hard. The way to enter into the kingdom of heaven is through many tribulations. The question within the Bible is not whether storms will come. The the question is when. When are they going to come? Because storms will arrive. They are on the horizon. Whether it's Jesus or whether it's Paul, the same thing holds true. Storms are on the way. And so, have you built your house upon the rock of what Jesus is saying here? Because he says, the only way to survive these storms is to build your house upon the foundation of Jesus' words. So, Following Jesus does not mean we we get to avoid storms altogether. No, following Jesus means that we get to endure storms proficiently. That's essential for us to understand. And this brings us back to the idea that Jesus is speaking to us with such a high level of authority. He tells us the only way that you're going to be able to endure through the midst of these storms when when they come upon you is to live your life according to what I have to say. Verse 24, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Jesus' words are pretty simple. Build your life on what I have to say. Now I want to point out that we typically read this part of Jesus' sermon and we think that Jesus is only referring to eternal realities. Like typically we read these sayings of Jesus and we think he's only talking about like building your house on his words for eternal salvation. That's typically the way we think about that. I think that's part of what Jesus is saying, but that's not the only thing he's saying. We'll get there in a few minutes where we talk about that. But for now, I just want to point out that Jesus is not merely speaking of surviving some eternal storm. He's talking about surviving the storms of this life. Jesus is is not just speaking about eternal uh, survival. He's speaking about flourishing in, in our lives here and now. 
He's teaching us wisdom, right? That's what this sermon is, is about in so many ways. This is wisdom. When Jesus says that we are to build our house on the rock to avoid spiritual destruction, he's referring to, to the wisdom that we need to build our lives on his words in order to avoid shipwrecking our faith when the storms come. Similarly, when Jesus says that we are to avoid building our house on sand or else we're going to experience destruction, he's referring to the reality that if we live according to the wisdom of our world, our lives are going to be left in shambles. This is really important for us to see. If you are living your life built on a foundation of what this world has to say about life, your life will result in turmoil. If your worldview is built on the foundation of of this world, the philosophies of this age, your life is going to end up in shambles. Uh, There's an article that just came out in The Federalist. It's a journal. It's a leading journal, a secular journal in our our, uh, media. And there's this, this article that just came out, and it is titled this, Is Sexual Autonomy Worth the Cost of Human Lives? This is written by a woman named Noelle uh, Maring. She's not a Christian. And yet, the message of her article is a biblical message. Her point is that living according to the rules of the sexual revolution that's taken place in our culture will leave you empty-handed and empty-hearted. She goes on to say that like this lifestyle uh, that the culture is, is so uh, adamant to advocate for, this sexual revolution, uh, it's going to result in the loss of human life through abortion. Again, this is in a secular magazine. The sexual revolution tells men and women that sex is essentially casual and it's meaningless. There's no inherent meaning in it. There's no significance to it. Women should participate in casual sex, just like men. Both should enjoy the benefits of of sex outside of the chains of this restrictive hierarchical idea that we call marriage. That's the message on blast in the, the cultural elites of our day. Well, Noelle Moring, she's just pointing out that that lifestyle cannot deliver on its promises. That message cannot deliver. And she hits the nail on the head. She, she shows that treating sexuality casually will leave women feeling used and mistreated by men who want nothing more than a night of sinful and, and selfish pleasure. And then she points out that this idea that uh, this casual sex idea is empowering for women, she says, that's not true. Women don't find this sort of thing empowering. Instead, they feel as though they're entering into some sort of competition to see who's better at treating the other individual as though they're a piece of flesh to be conquered. She's hitting the nail on the head. Right? The culture tells us sex is meaningless, it's casual. But that sort of mentality will leave men, women, and children, by the way, the natural result of, of casual sex, uh, it will leave all three of those, those people, groups, mistreated and neglected. 
right? That, that, in, that, in that context of casual sex, the unwanted pregnancy, like that's the storm, right? That's the storm that's going to come upon you and wreak havoc on your relationship. When you're just engaging in this flippant mentality about sexuality, you're going to wreak, reap havoc on children. The wisdom of this age is, is a foundation of, of sand. It's going to leave you hopeless. It's going to leave your, your families in, in total poverty. Today's wisdom will leave a child neglected or worse, aborted. It leaves relationships in shambles. But that's just one small example to show that the wisdom of this world is a foundation of sand. You build your life on the ways of this world and it will result in the destruction of your life. If you want to destroy your life, ignore everything Jesus taught. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what he's saying. You want to destroy your life, lust after women with all of your heart. Store up bitterness and hatred towards your enemies. Retaliate every single time someone hurts you. You want to destroy your life, that's how you do it. But know this, if you do that, you will end up empty. That sort of life is going to leave you uh, with heartache. It's going, it's going to leave you uh, a path and a wake of destruction that's going to be on its way out your rear view mirror. And so Christ is saying to walk according to his word. You want to avoid the, the storms uh, or, or to, you want to avoid a foundation of sand, walk according to my word. He's teaching us how to live according to the instruction manual. Think about this, right? Jesus is our creator, and he is teaching us how we can live out our intended purposes. Right? Jesus is our creator, and he's telling us how to thrive in life. Think about it. Anytime you use some sort of equipment outside of its intended purposes, you're going to result, like, like uh, damage is going to result. Some sort of damage, right? You use like an axe to cut hair, it, that's not going to turn out good, right? That's not what that instrument was intended for. Jesus is saying you are similar. If you order your life in a way that you are not intended to order your life, destruction is going to follow. There's going to be all sorts of issues that follow. If you want to be whole though, if you want to, to live out your intended created purpose, then you need to follow Christ, following Jesus, it's not something that just, uh, or, or living out these, these benefits of following Jesus, they don't just begin in eternity, right? The benefits of following Jesus actually begin now. They start now. Practically speaking, if you live out Jesus's commands, your life will naturally, in a sense, fall into order, right? If you, if you live out what Jesus is saying, then you're, you're probably going to be a better student, you're going to be a, a better spouse, better husband, better wife, better parent. You're going to be a better employee, a better employer. You're going to be uh, a, a better child. The list goes on and on. There are natural benefits to following Jesus. When you fight bitterness, on a daily basis, your life is just going to be better. When you're fighting against the temptation of lust internally, that's going to benefit your life. When you're resisting the temptation to live out your spirituality just so that other people can see it and gawk at you, that's going to relieve a lot of stress, 
a lot of pain of just constantly having your eye outward looking at what other people think of you. It's going to help you in a really practical sense to follow Jesus. That's essentially part of his message here. You live according to my wisdom, it's actually going to help you because this is what you were intended for. This is what you were created for. When you begin to live contrary to what you were created for, it will reap havoc. But we have to point out that this foundation of Jesus' teaching will endure during the storms of life. So there's not only benefit in just the practical everyday sphere of life, there is benefit to following Christ and living according to his word when the storms of life come. We get joy now, even in the midst of mourning. We have hope now, even when life seems to serve us nothing but pain and heartache. We pointed out earlier, Paul experienced a lot of pain in his life. He experienced a lot of heartache in his life. And yet, look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Just read these verses, verses 8 through 10. He says, we are treated as imposters and yet we are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as nothing, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. Notice what Paul is saying. When the storms of this life begin to rock your foundation, if your foundation is built on Christ, you will have lasting joy. Even in the midst of your pain. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. How does that happen? It doesn't happen unless you have a hope built into your soul through the gospel. William Cooper, he wrote a hymn titled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And he's writing about the storms of life that come upon us. And he says this, this is a pretty famous line from this, from this hymn. He says, judge not the Lord with feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Because behind a bitter providence, there is a smiling face. God is even at work in the midst of bitterness and in the midst of the storm in order to work out his purposes. This is central to Jesus' message. If you want to follow him, there will be benefits. When the storms of life come, you will be built on a rock. And you won't just merely be surviving, you will be able to thrive in the midst of the turmoil. So let me just point out also, This is directly related with how the Sermon on the Mount began. Remember the Beatitudes? This is how the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so too they persecuted the prophets who were, who were before you. Living out Jesus' words will result in our good even here and now, even as the storms of life rage. 
And yet, with all of that said, this does not mean that following Jesus only has immediate benefits here today, right now. No, following Christ will provide us with a rock-hard foundation that we need as we approach eternity. So this isn't just about here and now. It's more than that. It's about our eternal state. The more important lesson from Jesus here is that our lives ought to be built upon his word for the sake of eternity. You know, there are storms and then there are like real storms. I know we don't have a lot of real storms here in California, but we were talking about this in our small group the other night. We were talking about the fact that, you know, there are some storms where you look out onto the horizon and it turns the entire sky black. Right? Again, we don't, out here, you hardly hear lightning, right? I I mean, I don't know the last time I heard lightning here. But uh, when you're in different areas of the country, there are legitimate storms. I'm talking about like storms that make the sky almost look like it's slithering green, right? That sort of thing. That sort of an idea. Uh, These are the sorts of things that you see off in the distance, these sorts of black clouds, and they begin to spark fear in your heart, right? When I grew up in Florida, you could go on the beach when you knew a hurricane was coming, and if it was moving slowly, and if it was clear before the storm came, you could see it approaching as it began to come close, Right, when we lived in the Midwest, or if you're driving across the plains, that's, that's where you really see these sorts of storms. You can see for miles. You're driving across the plains and you just see this massive storm in the distance. Just pitch black, turning day into night. That's the sort of storm that Matthew 7 is describing. Look at what he says. Like, look at the details of what he's saying. He's saying that the rain fell, the floods came, Literally, the the translation there is the rivers are overflowing. The winds blew. They beat on that house. This is a massive storm. And this life is filled with all sorts of storms. This life is filled with tears. It's filled with pain. It's filled with heartache. And yet, all of those storms are a mere shadow in comparison with the eternal storm that, that does linger on the horizon. Right? There is an eternal storm that is waiting to wreak havoc. And this storm makes all of those other storms of life just pale in comparison. Right? We just read about that from Noah, or from, from Matthew 24, when, when Jesus is talking about Noah and talking about this impending storm that came and produced wrath upon all of creation. And then Jesus is con- Comparing what happened in Noah's day with what's going to happen at the end times. When Christ comes, there will be this massive storm that catches everyone off guard and reaps destruction across the creation. This storm that is approaching is God's wrath. And in our culture, in our day, in our age, that's not a popular thing to talk about. I get that. But here's the deal. If your foundation is anything other than Christ, that storm will destroy you. The wrath of God is poured out against every rebel who resists God's word. The, the, the wrath of God is going to be poured out against everyone who rebels against God's word and his law. If you fail to obey Christ... You are worthy of God's wrath. And and that puts us all in the same exact place. 
every single one of us, every single one of us, because of Genesis 3, every one of us are, are under the weight of sin. We have fallen short of Christ's law. We have failed to keep his word perfectly. And the reason that that is a problem is the holiness of God. The reason our rebellion is a problem is because God is holy. Holiness on God's part requires holiness from his people. God's perfection requires us being perfect. And to enter into true fellowship with God, that means that we have to be made perfect. We have to be made holy. And that may seem as though that's just kind of arbitrary. Did God just make this idea up one day because he was just thinking about humanity and how they were sinful? Did he just come up with this idea that he was holy and they couldn't enter into his presence? No. That's not just some arbitrary rule that God came up with one day. No. This is his very nature. God's law is rooted in who God is. The fact that that an unrighteous people, an unholy people cannot enter into his presence, it's not an arbitrary law. It's a law rooted in God's very essence. God cannot, by nature, be in the presence of sin. That's who God is. It's not arbitrary. God's law is rooted in his character. This may surprise you, but God cannot simply sweep sin under the rug. God cannot simply pretend sin is not there. God cannot just simply forgive. That sort of an idea is outside of God's very nature. He cannot do that sort of a thing. A perfectly righteous God requires the payment for sin. That's the truth. That's the reality. In fact, it would be unjust for God to simply pretend your sin did not exist and allow you into his presence. First, it couldn't happen, and second, it would be unjust. In the same way that it would be unjust for a courtroom to allow Julian Assange to walk freely out of that courtroom back into society, so too it would be unjust, but to a far greater degree, for God to allow sin to go unpunished. And for that, reason all of us deserve to experience the wrath of God and no difficulty in this life no storm in this life can compare to the magnitude of the sorrow that will be experienced on that day there is no pain that we experience now that can even compare to what will happen on that day the amount of pain the amount of sorrow the amount of tears shed The storm of God's wrath, it awaits. And however, if you are in Christ, your foundation is sure. And when God's wrath is poured out, you will be able to endure that storm. Which does lead to ask the question, how? If God's very nature prohibits him from coming in contact with sin and sinful individuals, how can anyone withstand his wrath? How can anyone stand under the fury of that impending storm? How can that happen? The answer is the cross of Christ. You see, the only way that we can escape underneath the storm of God's wrath is to find shelter in the only person who has endured the wrath of God and seen the other side. We have to find shelter underneath his wing. Because Jesus has weathered this storm, 
he provides for us a refuge in the midst of the storm when it comes upon us. Because Jesus has withstood the storm of God's wrath, he suffices as a foundation upon which we can build our lives and endure the storm when it comes upon us. If you are in Christ, your foundation is secure. Jesus has stood in the midst of that storm in your place if you place your faith in Christ. God's wrath has been poured out and yet Jesus endured it. Jesus endured God's wrath because of his impeccable holiness. Jesus was allowed back into God's presence because it wasn't his sin he was bearing on the cross. Like I said, God can't just simply pretend our sin does not exist. He can't simply forgive our sin. He has to pay for it. And that's exactly what he did in the person of Jesus. Jesus paid the price of our sin by enduring our sin and enduring the wrath of God in our place. Now, if you come to Christ you will get to experience the benefits of being united to Jesus. So you're not only united in the fact that you get to find shelter in the midst of the storm, because the storm is not the end of the story. No, the sun rose after the storm passed. Christ rose from the grave. And now when we turn to Christ, we do not only receive a place of refuge during the storm, we get the promise of the sun's light after the storm passes. We get to to live in the sun's light on the other side of that storm. So our our unity, our union with Christ, it presents us with all sorts of benefits. Yes, we are unified in his death, which means we do not have to bear Christ's or God's wrath when it is poured out on humanity, but we're also united in his resurrection so that when he rose through faith, we rose. We get to endure to the other side of the storm and stand with joy in his presence. And so, I would encourage you to be like the people that we see here at the very end of the sermon. After Jesus finishes teaching, look at what this crowd of disciples decides to do. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. You see, when the people looked at Jesus in amazement of the authority with which he spoke, they clearly realized that his authority with which he spoke, it had substance. It wasn't some self-imposed authority that did not prove uh, uh, a true or, or, or part of reality. No, his authority that he had was, was aligned with reality. He had, a, he had an, a voracious authority. It was a, a true authority. And the people saw that and they followed him. And so we have to make this decision. Are we going to view Jesus as the annoying guy sitting next to us on BART who's just interrupting our lives and trying to tell us how to live? Or are we going to view Jesus as the God of heaven who is telling us what we were created for? You ought to decide, which, which is it? Is Jesus the annoying guy trying to tell us 
how to serve a volleyball or is he the one who actually has all the authority in the world to tell you how to serve that volleyball? <laughs> you have to decide. Is Jesus' authority veracious or is it fake? Is it true or is it false? And if it is true, then there's one decision that we all have and that is to walk down from the mountain and follow him. Let's pray. Christ, we are so thankful for your word and we're so thankful for the fact that you have spoken to us, your people. Lord, you did not have to to descend to earth. You did not have to, to enter into your creation and yet you did. And then you spoke. And so Father, we, we, we thank you for sending Christ. And we pray that through the power of the Spirit, you would give us the ability to obey him and to live according to his word. Not only for the benefits that we can receive in this life, but we want to, through faith, live for Christ that we might experience the eternal benefits of walking with Jesus. We pray this all in Christ's name.